Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today's episode is sponsored by the new book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. It's available at Amazon as a paperback book, a Kindle ebook, as well as an audiobook. Just head on over to survivetheimplosion.com to get all the details. In today's episode, my special guest is Brad Wilkie of Smart House Creative over at smarthousecreative.com up in Seattle, Washington. I first met Brad at the Portland Film Festival where he was giving a talk, a presentation on creating a sustainable living as an independent filmmaker. The name of the session was actually called Bridging the Indie Gap, How to Create a Sustainable Career on an Uneven Playing Field. Now, in addition to being one of the programmers at the Seattle International Film Festival, SIF, Brad also has an MBA from the University of Washington Foster School of Business and a Master's of Communication and Digital Media from the University of Washington's Department of Communication. So he comes from it from both the creative side of filmmaking as well as the business side in terms of his education and knowledge, and he was trying to bring that all together in his presentation, Bridging the Indie Gap. The cool thing is we have him here on the Film Trooper podcast today, so I can explore his brain a little bit more, <laughs> and where he gets a chance to talk about these ideas, as well as what they're doing over at smarthousecreative.com. So without further ado, here's my special guest, Brad Wilkie, here on the Film Trooper podcast. What, in your perspective, is the state of the union for independent film or independent filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I love uh, jumping right into it. Let's not get uh, <laughs> from the bush, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not one for small talk either. And, you know, I think that is kind of the, the big question. And that's, that's something that I think about all the time. I'm not just saying that. Like, I mean, I think about that all the time, both from a creative perspective, but also from a business perspective and, you know, also, you know, a technology perspective uh, too. So, you know, uh, something that I've been working on now for, this will be its uh, fifth year, is the, uh, the Seattle International Film Festival's Catalyst Program. And, you know, the, the whole kind of uh, focus of that uh, program, it's kind of a, a sidebar of New American Cinema, SIF's U.S. Independent uh, section is to really dive deep into the state of independent film, uh, particularly in the U.S. Hmm. So, you know, this is something like our last uh, keynote um, was from Amy Dotson, who's the, the deputy director at IFP. And, you know, one of the things that she said was, uh, and I thought this was a bold kind of statement, but uh, you're not a filmmaker. And what she meant by that was that we are all content creators and, you know, telling stories across different platforms and, and different medias and, you know, where are those next things going to crop up? So, you know, and, and I think a lot of people are turned off by that term content creator because it sounds so corporate or so kind of, <laughs> kind of lifeless, right? Like yeah. we all want to be filmmakers, but, you know, you know, definition, you know, technically speaking, very few people are actually shooting on film. So you know, I think filmmaker itself, that term is kind of, 
you know, kind of morphed. It's more of, you know, you could say storyteller, you could say film, you know, people never want to say like, you know, like videographer, like video maker or something like that in creative sense. But, you know, so, so that's just kind of like a, a, just a small like preface on kind of answering that question just to, you know, just to confirm that, you know, this is something, like I said, like I kind of immerse myself in and, you know, I think, sort of where this all kind of came to a head is this this idea of bridging the indie gap mm-hmm. and you know that was the title of the presentation that I gave at the uh, 2015 Portland Film Festival and you know for me I look at this as you know there there still is this chasm that we all haven't you know kind of collectively learned how to cross yet and I think we're we're sort of told by gatekeepers and and sort of the the powers that be whoever those people might you know it's you know this 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 isn't like an us versus them kind of thing but it's more just like you know oh it's so easy anybody can make a movie now and you can put your movie on YouTube or Vimeo or you know you can just get it out there and it's it's going to find an audience and you know that is probably like the worst thing that you could tell a new filmmaker because <laughs> I feel like it gives them sort of a sort of a like a a skewed perception of what that playing field really looks like. Yes, if you have a built-in audience and you have resources and you've got connections, you could go out and make a movie with your friends over a weekend and get it out there and somebody might pick it up and it might show up in a couple you know, uh, blog posts of note or, you know, get retweeted and, you know, people will see it. Right. But mm-hmm. if you are, you know, the more, you know, sort of the, the statistically standard case where, you know, you're a filmmaker with very few, if any connections, very few, if any resources, um, you know, just somebody that has a story to tell as a film programmer, uh, you know, sort of as an, another job that I do, I see those all the time. I see all these great movies that there's just a, a, a an overabundance really of content out there and there just aren't enough spaces for those films, all this content to fit. And so what you see then is this sort of this imbalance, you know, to get kind of more like business wonky about it. Mm-hmm. There's this imbalance between supply and demand and what you have is is more supply and there's, you know, there's not as much demand to meet it. So, you know, you've got more and more films going the, you know, looking for sort of a salvation on the festival route or, you know, hoping that by putting it on Vimeo on demand or VHX or, you know, any, any you know, more like open accessible platform for sales, that that's going to be enough or like that's the end of their journey. And what it comes down to, and this is the really tough part, but that's just the beginning of their journey. Yeah. And, you know, if they want to look at this, you know, uh, a woman who wants to make, you know, a career out of directing films, you know, she's going to have to see it from a perspective of this is a long game. The arc of this story, her personal story as a filmmaker is going to include multiple pieces of content, whether you want to call those short films or feature films or web series or whatever, there's going to be a body of work. And, you know, that kind of speaks to this idea that I brought up called filmmaker first, 
where it's about the creator of the work, not necessarily each individual work, because the, the filmmaker, the creator is always going to have or should have a longer shelf life than each individual project. So, uh, you know, it's, it's really just a, a, you know, it's a balancing act. There are, you know, ways there's, there's, um, kind of tools and strategies and tactics that can be used. And it's definitely not a one size fits all, but it's really more about raising awareness that, you know, here's what you're really up against without being an ass about it and saying like, you'll never succeed. The odds are against you. Right. Well, yes, the odds are against you, but that doesn't mean you won't succeed. Uh, and, and I think like the more information you have, uh, you know, in this case, as a filmmaker, a content creator, but in any case, in any pursuit in life, and this kind of goes to that idea that we also touched on, you know, sort of of, of the black swan concept yeah. uh, that, you know, popularized by Nicholas Nassim Taleb, that you just have to be out there in the mix and you have to be, you know, doing things that are going to put your work in front of the most eyeballs and, and maybe not just the most eyeballs, but maybe the, the most important eyeballs. And, you know, so, so now to bring it all back again, to, to answer your very specific question, like, well, you know, it's specific, but it's also like huge and broad. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big <laughs> but, question. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's a super important question. I think a lot of uh, discussion and thought, you know, should and does go into it. But I think that the state of independent film right now is very promising. But I also think that there are sort of uh, trap doors that exist that uh, filmmakers have to be aware of so that they can avoid them and, you know, hope to, you know, hit that sort of that moment in the zeitgeist or capture that lightning in the bottle, however you want to look at it. But a lot of it involves luck and timing. But if you don't have all the building blocks in place and you, you know, especially if you don't even know what those building blocks are, you won't be able to, to take as full advantage of the, uh, the opportunities that might arise, uh, as somebody who does. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think this comes down to is saying, you know, here are some of these building blocks. Here are some of these tools. You know, there is no shortcut in my opinion. There is no, um, yeah, there's going to be people that hit a home run right out of the gate. Like I think, you know, the shortcut that still exists is, you know, having a popular, uh, well-received film at Sundance or, you know, uh, even South by Southwest, especially for genre genre films. Um, but for everyone else, you know, it really takes time. So, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, like that's that's kind of in a in a very large nutshell, kind of what, <laughs> kind of what we're looking at. <laughs> And yeah, definitely. Once, and once I hear that, you know, I'll probably be like, well, I, all these other things I wanted to add. But, you know, right now in this moment, you know, that's my uh, my thought on it. Interesting. I know that um, Yeah, you mentioned that we always get caught up in uh, the outliers that just kind of like you said, kind of everybody jumps to like, oh, that, that could be it. Like I could be that one of, you know, thousands that get selected. But I was curious with your with your work and um, your experience with um, business and uh, marketing and economics, and then bringing that to the film world and and participating and being very influential in the Seattle uh, International Film Festival. You know your involvement. I was wondering what is like how does somebody 
make money from a film? Like, what are the economics? So that I always thought it was, I had this conversation with an, uh, um, Annalise Larson yesterday for another podcast. Cool. And she, and she, we were talking about like, you never see like Spielberg just throw down $30 million and go, no, I, I'm worth billions. I'm just going to make my own movie. Right. Like, you know, I mean, it's like these guys have all this cash, but they still won't fund their own movies. Right. And so the, there's this concept of like, if I make a film and it does really well, I'll make enough money to make the next film. And then maybe a, a next film and I'll have enough money to earn a very nice living. The, there's this sort of, um, I don't know, thinking that that's, that's, that's all they're doing. Like All filmmakers are just working towards make the product, make it, make it success. But the economics of it are different. And I was curious from your experience of seeing that coming, films maybe coming out of uh, the Seattle International Film Festival and the clients you have to work with in terms of like, we have to uh, position your film to a certain place to to do what? To get bought? To get sold? Or like, what are the economics that are that you're seeing that are kind of like one foot in traditional and one foot into like the new uh, world and trying to stretch over that gap as you were, we were talking or you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. So uh, another great question. And, you know, I think that when it comes to filmmaking careers and making money from films, uh, you kind of have to look at, uh, scalability, right. Mm -hmm. And, and sustainability and, I think one of the reasons why, you know, somebody like a Spielberg or, you know, a director who has a lot of money uh, or, or anybody like any entrepreneur, right? Like you don't, you, you always see people going out to raise funding, like very seldom does, does somebody just like sink their own money into their project, even though they should be the ones who believe in it most. Right. <laughs> there's that risk, right? There's this inherent risk in the unknown, whether that's entrepreneurship or whether that's filmmaking. Uh, people, you know, are risk averse in most cases. And, you know, I think these days, you know, let's look at a, a, an old example, you know, of, you know, a classic example of an outlier. Mm -hmm. And that would be Kevin Smith with Clerks. You know, that movie was made, you know, supposedly as legend goes uh, with credit cards right. and, you know, and it paid off, right? For one, this one person, Kevin Smith, he got it in a Sundance in whenever that was like 93 or so. Yeah. And, you know, the Weinsteins loved it and they bought it. And then all of a sudden he has a career, right? So when you look at that, you know, to kind of bring in the, the, the black swan concept, it's really easy to kind of go backwards from that success. So here's Kevin Smith now, and he's got this, you know, view askew universe and this whole sort of, you know. Podcast you know, empire, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the tentacles have spread and, you know, and, and I would say, I'm sure like he would say like, you know, that, you know, he's not like a, a rich man by Spielberg standards, but by our standards, he's probably doing very well for himself. But, it, you know, it took time to build that. Right. Mm -hmm. But now let's go back to, you know, the, the moment where, you know, he was planning his follow up to Clerks, which was going to be funded, you know, most likely by Miramax. Like, I don't like I don't remember all the, you know, the, the details post, you know, immediately post Clerks. But yeah. when you look at Clerks, you say like, OK, here's a guy who took a risk. 
all this stuff happens. And then he's making a second film that's funded by a studio and he's in the lap of luxury. Right. And then you go back and you say, well, he did this, he did that, he did this, he did that. And then he, you know, put it on his credit card. And before that he was a clerk, you know, like doing all this other stuff. Right. So you build that narrative, that legend. And what you're really doing is you're taking that outlier and trying to turn it into, uh, you know, like a, an average, like a, like an average case, a standard. Right. And, and here's a great example of this. I just heard this on a podcast yesterday. Uh, and I highly recommend this to any, you know, to you, but also anybody who's listening to this is, uh, it's called question of the day Mm -hmm. and it's by two guys. I don't remember their name. Like it's James and Steve or or Steven are the, the their first names, but one of them, uh, was the co-author of, uh, Freakonomics. So it's a really excellent podcast, but the, the, what, the, one of the questions that came up as they were answering this other question was, you know, if you were on a train and you saw a person who was, you know, kind of kind of looked a little disheveled, had a tweed coat on and uh, appeared to be reading a really old book, you know, do you think that person is a librarian or do you think that person is a salesperson? And, you know, most people, you know, if they you know, kind of have like a gut instinct, they'll say, look, that's obviously a librarian. Or, you know, if it wasn't a librarian, you could say a classical book uh, scholar or whatever, right? Yeah. But when you look at the stats of how many like classical antiquarian book, you know, uh, people there are, or even professors compared to how many salespeople there are, the odds are that person is a salesperson. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, but you know, we've got a a bias to like take all the pieces that we see and and say like, well, look, he's got a tweed jacket on, it's got the arm patches. uh, You know, he kind of looks like Doc Brown in Back to the Future. uh, And he's reading this old book. Of course, he's, you know, a scholar or he's a crazy, you know, Mm -hmm. or he's a salesperson, you know, on his way to uh, another, you know, he's like selling uh, whatever, right? Like something like super boring, right? A widget. And I think there's a direct application then to kind of filmmaking. It's like, you know, is, you know, Kevin Smith is, you know, in that example, the antiquarian, the, the, uh, the scholar, right. Whereas in reality, when you look at that situation, we are all the salespeople, like, you know, like everybody out, like for every one Kevin Smith, there's thousands of people that have, you know, mortgaged a house or yeah. maxed out their credit cards because they read all the stories that look, this, you know, you take a, a leap on this. It's kind of like a gold rush, right? And it's because the rewards are so outsized and so uh, giant compared to the, uh, you know, you don't think about like, well, yeah, what happens if my movie doesn't get into Sundance or what happens? Because because you're like, well, that won't happen to me. I'm special, right? Yeah. We all think that. I mean, it's like a bias. Like, it's not bad. It's just like human nature, I think. And, you know, so I think it's like part of it is sort of like a philosophy is saying like, I am not the special case. I am not the outlier. Kind of like Amy said, you know, you are not a filmmaker. I would say you are not the outlier. And <laughs> You know, so you have to like part of bridging the indie gap is believing that you are, you know, the average. You are in the middle. Like if you're lucky, you're in the middle of the bell curve, right? Yeah. And um, so, 
you know, so I think, you know, to kind of, again, like to get back to like, sort of like the, the, the specific answer to your question about making a living, you know, I think it really is about finding sustainable ways to mitigate risk while you're making the film. So that means like, not just keep your budgets low, because I think, you know, if you look at a, you know, a film that comes out of a Hollywood studio these days, like those budgets are huge, right? Like, I mean, like even if Steven Spielberg were willing to put $30 million into a film, I, I mean, I don't think he would know necessarily like what kind of movie to make because he's so used to like super high budgets. Like it would be like the equivalent of an indie film, but it would still cost $30 million, right? Yeah. So then what's the market for that, right? Like how, like you got to, you know, mark like, so I think what it really comes down to is is running as lean as possible when it when when it comes to your budgeting when it comes to all of these outlays right and you know I can tell you right like I mean this is like kind of good timing because I you know the reason we had to to push back our our interview is because we were in the middle of uh, like as it turned out simultaneously uh, crowdfunding and producing. Uh, a feature length anthology film here in Seattle. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. Like, I mean, I don't, even, I haven't even started to like unpack, you know, I, I hate that word, but it's like the best word for this uh, yeah. situation. Um, kind of how that happened and what happened, but I will tell you, and this is one thing I do know is that a lot of things had to happen just right in order for us to pull that off. So by no means was it, you know, all the stuff that we did and that's why this worked it was because we were prepared and we knew you know we had a plan but you know all sorts of all other things came like it was a, a movie uh, so the idea it's called 13 chambers and wow. it's an anthology film uh where we gave uh, 13 female uh directors here in the seattle area uh a space in a in a building that was abandoned and is about to be uh raised to make a short film on one or more of the themes, the uncanny, the supernatural, or the sublime. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to explore genre filmmaking from, you know, a, a feminine perspective. And, you know, it just, it like, I can't wait. You know, the, the, the filmmakers are editing their, their segments right now. And, you know, like I said, this is a whole other kind of podcast, but this kind of speaks directly to what I talk about when I say, how do you make this sustainable? Well, we produce the whole thing for under $6,500. Nice. And we also have an agreement set up. And this is something like I'll talk, you know, some of the details about it here, but this is something I want to eventually create as kind of like an open source kind of framework for content distribution. But, you know, we're giving the filmmakers gross points on the back end because, the, uh, the budget was so, so small that, you know, we're not going to go out looking for a distributor. We're going to distribute it ourselves. We might play a few film festivals as like a way to sort of like raise awareness. But, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't want to say like I have full confidence that the movie is going to be profitable. But, you know, I, I do kind of, you know, like I will say that. Like, I, I don't care if it comes back to haunt me because I don't think it will. Yeah. Because we kept the budget low enough that we've got a lot of flexibility and it's a genre film. Like, so, so it's about kind of like making smart decisions, but it's also like a really artful uh, piece, 
like, I mean, I, I you know, was there as a lot of these segments were being shot and I saw a lot of footage, you know, between, uh, you know, during breaks and everything. And it's beautiful. And so I feel like, you know, if you're able to sort of, you know, kind of balance that, like, you know, how, how lean can you do this? Like how, like how many costs can you shave? Because, you know, these days for indie filmmakers, you know, it's not necessary. like, you know, you might have a name in your film, but that doesn't guarantee anything anymore, you know, unless it's like a huge name, but, but even, even then it's like, you know, it kind of comes down to like how good the film is and, and, you know, there's all these kind of intangibles. So, I mean, I see movies all the time that don't get into SIF, but end up within a couple months on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't, you know, because they're on Netflix doesn't mean that they're a good movie because they got rejected from SIF doesn't mean they're a bad movie. It's just, there's all these different ways. So I don't think necessarily that the fact, like, like, I feel like, you know, I'm not speaking for SIF when I say this because, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, there, there is still like a push, you know, for uh, filmmaker fees from filmmakers. And, you know, that is like a really, really hot button issue. But I also think that because there is so much content out there right now that a filmmaker needs... I think a festival needs a filmmaker more than a filmmaker needs a festival. And that's because there's so much stuff out there and there's so many options. I mean, we're advising a film right now that's a genre film. Uh, and I'm, you know, telling, you know, they're saying like, Hey, we got into another one of these, you know, the such and such weekend of horror, you know, at the, you know, the Franklinville best Western, right. Or something. And, (laughs) You know, they're like, should we accept? And I'm like, no, don't accept that invitation because at this, because they're also early in their, in their, uh, their festival, like they still have yet to premiere. They've got it lined up and everything's set, but it's, it's still like on the front end. Right. Mm-hmm. So on the back end, you can accept those kind of invitations and play and that's great and increase your audience and everything. But on the front end, you know, you, you kind of want to keep this, this aura kind of about, about the film, but you can't expect or hope that a distributor is going to come in and save the day. Like they're going to see your movie, you know, like in the old days at Sundance and then give you a, you know, buy it for 5 million or 10 million, give you a, another, you know, three picture deal or something, you know, it's like, like, I feel like those days are, are pretty much over again, except for the outliers. Like that might happen at Sundance this year. Like somebody, you know, there might be another movie, but I think, you know, beasts of no nation is a great example which, you know, Netflix bought for $12 million. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this weekend it did barely 50,000 at 31 theaters. I know this because I just read this article. So it's not like I just have these numbers all the like I just, <laughs> I just read this. Um, but, you know, it, I think the, the per screen average was like $1,300. Yeah. And that's a huge, like, I mean, that that is like by any metrics, that would be like a, a failure, you know, for for an independent film that would be like, okay, that has no legs. Right. Yeah. But you know, maybe Netflix was just doing it so it could qualify for the Oscars. Right. And they're making it up somewhere else. We don't know, excuse me, the, the back end. you know, even though Netflix is subscription, you know, did it increase their subscription? Like who knows? There's other metrics out there. Maybe that they're more excited about or, or they care more about, but you know, from like, you know, sort of like the public perspective, 
the you know that would be like a, a you know kind of a like a a version of a day and date. It's not you know transactional VOD, but it's you know it, you can still get it in two different places. And very few people went to see it in the theater, which I think is telling because you know now it's like okay, you've got the the machine of Netflix. They've got all these resources. Did they not put enough money into the marketing of it? You assume that they have the money that they could spare a few million dollars to, to market this. So what does that say then for film, uh, indie filmmakers, like truly indie filmmakers, who might only have a few thousand dollars, if anything, to market their film, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, that's like, you know, the very first thing I said when answering this question is about sort of, uh, it's about scale. And, you know, how big does your audience have to be in order for you to turn a profit? And what do you do then with that, that, that revenue or hopefully that profit? Like, do you use it to pay your rent for, for one month or two months? Do you, you know, do you have a family? Like, is this like your day job or do you have enough? Like, you know, I, I think the, you know, you sort of have this sort of like blue collar filmmaking that's happening these days where, you know, you, you don't have like the, the, you know, I, I, for some reason I always use Wes Anderson, but mm -hmm. you know, like the Wes Anderson or Noah Baumbach style where it's like, you know, you're just like chilling out in New York and jet setting to different festivals and, you know, working on something that Scott Rudin's going to produce. And, you know, it's like, you got a pretty, you know, swank life, but, you know, I think for most of us and all, like when I say most, I mean like 95% or more, uh, and that's even considering people who are like actually like, you know, quote unquote working in Hollywood, you know, like with agents and managers, like are, are really kind of like, you know, what is my lifestyle going to look like next year? Will I be able to, you know, continue to call myself a filmmaker? Um, you know, what do I have to do to get more work out there? And, you know, I, I think it comes down to just like, you know, really like basic economics. It's like, how low can you keep your costs? And, what can you do to generate the most amount of revenue, which, you know, is a lot easier said than done, Yeah. but it's basic economics. It, like filmmaking isn't magic, you know, like that sort of like, I feel a lot of times like people think of like, you know, like filmmaking or app development or software or like anything where like the sort of like the reward is huge, right? That it's this sort of like magical, like somebody just comes up with an idea and next thing you know, it's like Facebook or something or it's, I mean, there's a great book called The Accidental Billionaires about Twitter and the development and sort of rise of Twitter. And, you know, if you looked at it, you know, slice by slice, not as like a black swan style, like these guys, you know, rose to the top and won and here's how they did it. They failed all the time. <laughs> Every time something was going wrong and they pivoted and pivoted and pivoted almost like was like a almost like a 360 degree pivot they were pivoting so much and you know then all of a sudden it's twitter and it's like oh they're brilliant well they didn't have a business plan they didn't have a revenue stream they didn't have like it's you know that seems like magic but when you read the actual like history of it it was like a very huge struggle but they also were lucky enough to have you know, sort of uh, like benefactors who are like making sure that the lights stayed on. And, you know, and I think with a lot of filmmakers, who's their benefactor, you know? Yeah. It, there, I mean, there isn't like it's so anyway, like I, I guess like what it comes down to is like it's a very, very complex uh, situation right now for, for like how do you make money on a film? 
-hmm. Like I think like, yes, you might strike an audience and like finds and people want to buy this and there's some like, you know, there's outliers there, right? But I think like for the most part, if you scroll through like the Vimeo on demand uh, offerings or VHX or, you know, get really deep into Netflix or, or anywhere, right? Or Google Play, you're going to see a lot of movies, like a long tail that's like very, very long and very, very dry when it mm -hmm. comes to, to money. So, yeah, it's, um, you mentioned the, the blocks, Black Swan um, reference in terms of the book. So for those, for the audience who might be going like, what the heck is a black swan? <laughs> you did a yeah. really great presentation, uh, example of it in the presentation at the Portland Film Festival. Can you give us a little bit of rundown what that means, the term black swan, and, and then how that would relate to the world of filmmaking so there's context so people understand like okay so that's what he meant by black swan yeah that's a great question and i'm trying to remember exactly what i might have said uh as as an example there but i so here's a here's a great example based on something that we were just talking about um is kevin smith mm -hmm. so kevin smith is a perfect example of a black swan it's you know so using his example let's just use that example you know he he does this thing. He comes out of nowhere uh, with a movie, right? So, generally speaking, a black swan is an event, or you know, usually an, usually an event, but it you know could be kind of a a, mo a moment or a movement or or something like a stock market crash or uh, you know the attacks on September 11th or um, Kevin Smith you know, selling clerks at Sundance. It's, it yeah. happens. Nobody sees it coming. Nobody saw it coming. And then it changes everything after. Mm -hmm. And then what people do is they try to recreate or they try to uh, compensate or prepare for the next black swan by using history as an indicator. So, you know, like for the stock market, you know, we try to put uh, regulations in place or we try to, you know, stem or stop the thing that happened in the first place from from happening again. But it doesn't matter because the next thing is going to be, you know, the next stock market track crash or the next bubble is going to come from a place that we don't see it coming from. Otherwise, it wouldn't have like that's the whole point. Or, you know, in the, the example of September 11th, that's, you know, increased airport security and all this other stuff. But that's probably not where God forbid something else would happen. Like it's not going to come from that same uh, source. Right. Kevin Smith, uh, you know, everybody starts maxing out their credit cards and making movies and trying to get stuff out there. Well, you know, again, th those are pure outliers. But what you do then is you look at that event, that event happens, and then you trace back a narrative by connecting usually unrelated events. Like, so like in Kevin Smith's case, it would be like, well, he sold the film at Sundance because one, he got into Sundance and he got into Sundance because he submitted it on this day and he knew this person who knew this other person who, you know, encouraged Kevin Smith to submit the Sundance because he was just about to finish his rough cut of the film, but it needed a little bit more work. And then you go all the way back until like Kevin Smith, the day that he opened that credit line. Right. Yeah. And so you're like, well, it's because he opened the credit line and the credit card companies like, Kevin Smith opened his credit line with us. Like, if you want to be the next Kevin Smith, open your next credit card with us, right? Like, you know, and people do that. It's like everybody wants to be part of that narrative. And, you know, the thing is, though, is that narrative is completely 
you know, I, I don't want to say completely fabricated, but, you know, it's very tenuous, those connections among all those different events. So, you know, in a more sort of like abstract example, I think a, a good example of a black swan is, you know, this thing that, you know, again, you don't see it coming, it happens, and then um, everything changes, everybody tries to catch up, but they're already behind because the next one, you know, is going to come, you know, it's like Shakespeare writing plays, right? There's probably 500 equivalent playwrights out there during that time, maybe, maybe less, maybe like maybe 300, right? But yeah. there's only one William Shakespeare that has survived throughout history. So you also have a lot of black swans in environments where it's a, a winner take all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's only one Lady Gaga, right? So she's, you know, sells out concerts, sells out all the, you know, is huge on all these different platforms. But now she's also in, uh, you know, American Horror Story or whatever, like, and there's probably a lot of actresses that could have done Lady Gaga's job in American Horror Story. But because Lady Gaga was, you know, where she was, she was able to take advantage of all those other. So, so, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, once you're in, you're in, but how do you get in? Who knows? Like somebody could, you know, it's the, the idea of, you know, 80 rejections and then the 81st, you know, submission is a yes. And that becomes the one that makes all the difference. Uh, it's like John, uh, I can't remember if I got his, am I going to get his name? But it's John uh, O'Toole. It, it, his last name is O'Toole. It's the guy who wrote A Confederacy of Dunces. Oh. And, you know, he was basically like a failed writer and he wrote this John Kennedy tool. I think his name is mm -hmm. uh, not O'Toole. It's John Kennedy tool. And he wrote this book, Confederacy of Dunces, you know, in the sixties or seventies, I think. And nobody thought it was good. Everybody thought it was shit. And, you know, eventually he wound up killing himself hmm. and because he was a failed writer in his mind. So anyway, Somebody in his family unearths the manuscript in a shoebox, you know, set of shoeboxes or whatever, and takes it to a, this was down in Louisiana, so takes it to a, a professor, an English professor at uh, uh, Louisiana State. He or she reads it, thinks it's really good, takes it to a, a publishing agent, publishing agent loves it, it publishes, and it wins the, uh, the Pulitzer Prize that year and goes on, you know, to just be like a really popular book and it's hilarious and it's insightful. And, you know, it's the work of somebody who like wrote something amazing, but it, what, you know, it just came like, not when he knew it. And, you know, it's like, again, like the black swan idea, it's like, you know, so in his case, like the way to, and, and I think the big thing is here is in, in these sort of winner takes all scenarios to expose yourself to the opportunities for finding a black swan. So by going to the network mixers, even though you hate those kind of things, mm -hmm. by going, by sticking around for the Q&A, because maybe the director is going to say something like, well, you know, I grew up in Muskego, Wisconsin. And, you know, in Muskego, that's where I grew up, right? So then I'm like, holy shit, this guy like lived right down the street from me. So I'm going to go and, you know, I'm like, hey, I loved your movie and I'm from Mosquito too. Like, you know, and maybe he's like, you know, feeling homesick or she's feeling, you know, and it's like, Oh, let's grab a beer. Or something, you know, and 
that's a black swan because like you never, you know, so, so I feel like that's, that's kind of the thing. It's like, it, it, it's again, that sort of like that preparation meets luck, but if you don't put yourself out there, you're never going to have those opportunities. So right. I don't know if that's as good of a description as I kind of used. Cause I like, I kind of prepared, you know, obviously prepared for it a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I remember, yeah, I remember in the presentation you were talking about essentially that everybody thought there was nothing but white swans. In, oh, in it. right. And, the, and yes. then they found a black swan. I think it was in Australia or so. It was like someplace else. Yes. And then once they found one, they found more, and it, it changed the perspective of like using it as an analogy. Like yes. Uh, or it's almost like the concept of the, the guy who ran the the whatever the four minute mile or something like. Like until somebody did it, like everybody thought it was impossible until somebody does it, then a bunch of other people can do it or it breaks that mindset. But you're right because you I liked what you put in your presentation because you said in the black swan scenario, no matter it doesn't matter if you look back in history towards all the data, because once a black swan event happens, it, it has no relevance to whatever historical data there was <laughs> to yeah. some extent. Yeah, right. That's that's totally true. And, you know, I, I think like that, that is like a, a great example, first of all, and thanks for reminding me about all that. Um, but from the idea of, you know, sort of uh, the stock market, right? Mm-hmm. And this is sort of where uh, Nassim Taleb developed this whole concept in the first place, is that, you know, so many people base their future bets and their future, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, plans on historical events. So like, well, we got to make something like what? What are the comparables, right? I see this in a lot of indie film pitch uh, books, right? That oh well, you know our comparables. Everybody's comparable is like uh, Little Miss Sunshine, or you know, so even though it has nothing to do necessarily, like maybe they're both comedies, but you know, Little Miss Sunshine. Like, I, I feel like the idea of indie film comparables is not like that's using historical data mm-hmm. to predict a very highly volatile and I would say unpredictable marketplace. Yeah. And, you know, so, so yeah, I I feel like relying on past data to predict or influence or guide future decisions is only good in sort of like a, you know, sort of like a, a way to be like, well, you know, all of these sort of like disaster films from the seven, you know, like, you know, to like kind of like discourage you from doing something like, you know, like, well, nobody's ever been able to make a 500 story skyscraper. So maybe, you know, that's, that's pretty good data. Like we shouldn't try to do that. Right. Like then I would say like, yes, that's a good predictor. Right. Because, you know, it's, it's sort of like the negative case of that, but, you know, to say like, you know, well, you know, a 300 story skyscraper, you know, will stand. So let's, let's do a 400 story because, you know, no 300 story fell down. Well, that's right away a recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. So with your, the work that you guys do at smart house creative, which is really interesting because I was reading through the, uh, uh, the website and I love the fact that uh, one of your team members, Jessica Marks is your public relations and digital marketing professional, uh, listed there. But the yeah. fact the fact that she's the great granddaughter of Groucho Marx is just awesome because <laughs> I was in when I was in high school I would um, you know this is during the time this is interesting because viewing media was different at the time I and I'm older and I was in high school there was this channel that would show 
all these old like Jack Benny shows and uh, This Is Your Line with Groucho Marx. Yep. And then not only that, but I was able to start, you know, watching all these old Groucho Marx movies that were like a marathon or the Marx Brothers movies marathon, like American movie classics. And yep. It became so enthralled with like that era and that 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 those zany comedies. Um, I remember, like, I never much was a reader, <laughs> but this book, one of the first books I really remember reading, enjoying, was uh, Groucho and Me by Groucho Marx. It was ah. just like his own personal sort of very funny autobiography, you know, sli- kind of. But anyway, so when I was reading through your your team. Um, and I don't want to, you know, for, uh, exclude Ryan Davis, who's part of your team as well. But yeah. I was like, Jessica, oh, that's awesome. So anyway, one day <laughs> I got a chance to just say, oh, my God, that's amazing. If I yeah, get a yeah. chance to meet Jessica. so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you uh, hardly ever, I mean, it's like you would never know. But um, yeah, it's, but it's funny because her uh, on her Twitter uh, bio, I, I, I remember the first time I saw it. And I didn't realize that this was her that her family lineage, but, uh, it says, you know, you know, these are my, uh, my principles. If you don't like them, I have others, which is like a pretty classic, pretty classic line. So many good things. So uh, smart house creative, you guys, you know, with the kind of clients you were bringing on, um, and are you helping, um, helping like filmmakers and brands and, and clients like get over that gap in terms of setting them up for the sustainability, um, with your, with your strategies and things like that. And, um, um, is smart house creative also involved with this 30 chambers or 13 chambers project you're working on? Yeah. So yes, yes to all those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So if you want to expand a little bit more, like in terms of like ex- explaining better than I can in terms of like how smart house creative, uh, was formed and how it's helping filmmakers and what you're seeing. Cause I'm, I'm guessing you saw it firsthand working at SIF, you know, Santa international film festival. Um, and a lot of, you know, people, all the filmmakers coming through, you're like, Oh my gosh, it just needs like, they need help in this one aspect of getting to marketing strategy, you know, um, uh, PR placement, all that kind of stuff. But I'll let you run with it. I just want to make sure that I, I was kind of in the wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. And, you know, that's that's so, so when you look at it, kind of that's usually the one thing or one of the you know few or many things that are left out of the planning process, you know, for indie film is often like, well, what do we do after the film's made when it comes out? Like, what do we do on the festival? Like, how do we navigate all that? And I think a big reason we're in this great sort of like transition right now great in the sense that it's large and it's all encompassing, but also great because I feel like there's a a big need for the services that smart house offers is that, uh, you know, there's always this idea that somebody else would do it, that your distributor would do it, or, you know, a publicist would come out of nowhere from your distributor because they've got all this money to spend on it. Right. Well, most distributors have a slate of films and they've got a catalog of films so, you know, once you're like two week, if you're lucky, window is over, you are in the catalog. And then it's like, so like there's your shelf life, right? And what it really, you know, what, what I think the, the big sort of issue is, is that not enough uh, filmmaking teams sort of bake this into their plan from the beginning. So that's what we really try to advocate for is that, you know, whether or not 
you you hire somebody like us to do this as part of the team or you know on a retainer style kind of thing it's like you at least have to think about it and that's sort of where this you know bridging the indie gap kind of idea comes from is that you know there are people that won't be able to or don't want to or don't see the utility in hiring us right that doesn't mean they don't need the stuff that we offer right and you know that's why you know i wanted to you know start getting this you know, these ideas and these templates out there in sort of an open source way, because, you know, people that can afford it or, you know, understand the need for it, you know, then, you know, we can help them, you know, sort of, uh, you know, tweak and revise and sculpt those templates and models in service of their film. Right. And that's like more of like a white glove sort of valet approach. Right. But everybody else, and I mean that like everybody else who's making movies that wants to find an audience for them needs to at least consider these things. And, you know, so that, so like, you know, like that was always in the back of my mind that there was this need out there and talk about sort of a random kind of thing. But I was working at a, a global health nonprofit here in Seattle. I was their digital engagement strategist and I was, you know, the, it was a good job benefits, all this stuff. But I was actually kind of bored, honestly, like, doing what I was doing and I really, really support global health, but I'm not like passionate about it in the way that I am, you know, film, right. uh, you know, it's like I theoretically, I'm like, yes, of course, but that's not my passion. So, you know, so I was just kind of like doing my job and, you know, doing a, a good job. Actually, it was the first time I said to my wife before I started, I'm like, <laughs> I said to her, I was like, this, you know what, it took me so long to find this job. And it's a good, like, I'm actually going to only work on this job when I'm in like, cause usually I would work on like screenplays or others, you know, like here and there, like, you know, like I'm sure a lot of people probably do who are in this field, you know, have day jobs. Um, but you know, when I was at this, this, uh, this organization, like I was just knocking it, I was killing it. I was loving it. I was loving the work for a while. And then, like I said, it kind of got like a little bit like, okay, what else is there? Cause I'm always looking, you know, kind of like innovating or, you know, very entrepreneurial and kind of like, what can we do next? And they were like very constrained about like what was possible and what they were willing to kind of explore when it comes to digital strategy. Mm -hmm. And then they had a budget cut and they, they uh, laid off 40% of the, the web team. Uh, it, the budget cut hit the, uh, they have a huge budget, but yeah. it's all put toward, you know, the actual program work. And I was in external relations. So this budget cut hit the external relations team. And it was like this, all this, like, you know, and, you know, honestly, like secretly, I was like, oh, I hope I get laid off because I would never quit this job right now. But I also feel like it's not a really good fit. Yeah. So I did get laid off. <laughs> and it was like a pretty, you know, like, you know, left on really good term, you know, like it was, it was a good, it was a good situation, but I had only been there for like 11 months. And they're like, well, we're just going to fold this work in, you know, it's, you know, we just can't, can't sustain this position. Right. And then I was like, okay, that's great. That's, that's good. But, but I have two kids, my wife works and, and it's like, I need to be doing something that earns money. And, you know, so it kind of went through a flurry of like, you know, kind of desperation, you know, desperate resume submissions. And then, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden I was like, well, I love movies and I know a lot about like digital strategy and business and, like there's gotta be like, and then all of a sudden I was like, well, what if I just did this, what I was doing at this nonprofit, you know, digital engagement strategy. What if I just turn that toward movies and that kind of started my wheels spinning. 
and then I connected uh, during SIF uh, of 2014, I guess, um, connected with Ryan and Jessica. They were both publicists mm-hmm. working on different films at the festival. And, you know, we we're just taught. And then, you know, the, the, the hardest part usually is kind of new business development. Mm-hmm. And so we we're just like, well, what if we, you know, what if we just combine forces and kind of created this hybrid agency and, that's kind of how that started, you know, that's how Smart House started. Yeah. Um, you know, so at, at that point and for like, I would say the, the, ver- the, the first at least year of our existence, you know, we did digital strategy, uh, publicity and press relations, audience engagement via social media and, you know, some, uh, you know, like web development and you know, some like kind of one-off kind of things, mostly for films, uh, but then also started doing it for film festivals here in Seattle and startups, you know, like kind of like re- referrals, like word of mouth. We didn't really do any. Yeah, yeah. But then as we started working, we did some work for uh, smaller distributors and you know, we kind of realized like kind of like what kind of like knowledge base we had. And then it was sort of like, well, it is kind of the wild west out there when it comes to like independent film and distribution and, you know, as William Goldman would say, nobody knows anything. And I feel like that, <laughs> that applies in so many different ways to so many different things, but, you know, especially to film distribution right now, I think, you know, like the Netflix experiment is a really good example. It's like even somebody like Netflix could, you know, potentially fail in a, in a marketplace, right. With a kind of a, a new model or a new release kind of thing. And so uh, what happened then is we started kind of looking to, you know, what else could we do? You know, I, I guess like diversify sort of our service offerings. So now where it stands is we, um, we just acquired actually our first uh, film uh, for uh, distribution. So we're going to do a, a limited theatrical and then uh, put it out as, uh, you know, a VOD that's sold directly through our website and the film's website mm-hmm. but before doing any. So what we call it is just sort of like, and you know, uh, it's not so much the term, but it's just how I can understand it best is sort of flipping the windows. So instead of like trying to get it onto Netflix and iTunes and all those places that we actually want to like, try to like squeeze as much revenue out of it for ourselves and the filmmakers. So we also have an ownership stake in the film. Like, so we bought part of the film so that the, you know, I wanted to, erase or eliminate the agency problem right. which is you know i think is important and again i want to open source this this mo- like i feel like there's a lot of benefit here and the filmmakers are like this is like the most fair you know kind of straightforward deal and you know and that, i'm not, like i'm just saying like i feel like we're on like we're moving in the right direction to this sort of like increased transparency in indie film yeah definitely. distribution so so we're you know we're planning we're you know kind of getting our ducks in a row on that and we're going to put that movie out in uh, you know early 2016, but then 13 Chambers just happened because there was a an opportunity, and we just jumped on it because this is and and as a result of that, like the you know the the project got picked up in IndieWire last week, and that resulted in a phone call that I had with like I hate when people like are like don't say like all these things. I just don't want to say this person's name just because like they're not officially committed to the the film but they're really right. really interested in this idea and you know want to like be helpful and see the films at their earliest stage you know kind of like rough cut and you know all sorts of stuff but it was like a very very encouraging 
moment. And, you know, so now we're looking at like, you know, does this anthology sort of model, could this be, you know, like a, uh, an, uh, like an interesting sort of hybrid for films. It's not short films. It's not a feature. Like it's, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot like, so I, I think what we're going to do is, is uh, produce another genre anthology film um, in quick order and kind of like, you know, I really kind of model my producing after Roger Corman and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and now like, I think, you know, Jason Blumhouse is a really good example of that. Um, but really keeping the cost low and, you know, putting something out there that people will actually want, you know, there's gotta be hooks and, you know, stuff that people want to uh, see. So, um, so now we're kind of expanding, you know, so we still do our bread and butter business, which is, you know, film marketing and digital strategy. Um, but now we're expanding into, uh, distribution and production in a really, you know, sort of like lean startup style where, you know, it's not like we're saying we're, we got to raise a million dollars for our first movie. We just raised ten thousand dollars for it on Seed and Spark, and produced it at the same time somehow. So, yeah. you know, I feel like you know, it's really just like, what are you willing to do? Like, what sacrifice? Like, yeah, like I was like constantly like on call for the last like six days, and you know, my family wasn't super happy about it, but it was only <laughs> six days, you know. And you know that thing, like we own this movie now, and you know, the, the filmmakers own part of it too, in a way that it's not like a net point kind of thing. It's not a Hollywood accounting kind of thing. It's like, they're going to get reports and they're going to know what the heck is going on with their interest in the film. And Mm -hmm. that's how it should be. And that's what we, you know, kind of, you know, that's the model that we want to put out there. And, you know, that's the the kind of place that we want to be. And I feel like that will attract the filmmakers that we would want to work with. That'll attract the films that are interesting, that believe in that sort of model and, you know, who knows where it'll go from there? I mean, you know, I, like I said, I just feel like I am trying to add value to the, the indie film world out there. And right. this is kind of the way that we do it. But it also helps because people, you know, it's like a, a service and a, a value that people find valuable and they'll pay for, you know. So so it's it's kind of like a, you know, win-win, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Well, very cool. I'm excited. I'll make sure to put all the links in the show notes so people can find Smart House Creatives, find awesome. the, some of the articles or anything that's related to the stuff that we talked about. Yeah, and I can send you the IndieWire link, but it's also oh, cool. like, if you just look on our like on um, Twitter or something like. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I'll I'll send it to you just to make it easier. Oh, awesome. And uh, as we wrap up our hour, I was wondering, is there something a question that you wish filmmakers would ask you that you don't get asked? You know, like something like uh, even from the perspective of working at SIF or working at Smart House Creative, that you, there, you is there a question that you wish that's that on a more global scale or something like that that never gets asked but should be asked? Well, yeah, and I feel like there's two versions of that question, um, but I, I think the the main version, and this is like before they could even ask me this question. So I'm going to say like, but one, a question that filmmakers should ask themselves, why am I making this movie? Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing is like, does this have to be a movie? Could it work as a podcast? Could it work as a web series? Could it work as a short film? Maybe it's a short story. Maybe it's a novel. Like, I don't know, but like, does it have to be a movie? Because I feel like there's so many, like there's so much content out there that, that I feel like you really have to kind of like pick your battles and pick the, you know, 
you got to like, you're going to put so much effort into it. It's going to take so much time and costs and all this other stuff. That's like, is this the thing you want to commit to? Or is it just a thing you thought would be fun or cool? <laughs> you know, that now you're going to dedicate like a year at minimum or on average of your life to. Mm -hmm. And then after, you know, so that's like the earliest question, right? That's like the, the source question. But, but I feel like after the film's made and they're going around, it's like, you know, I, I think the biggest question that they should ask is what's next? Like, what's my plan for how this project gets me to my next project? Not like who my audience, you know, like, I mean, all those things should happen, like between why am I making this movie and what's next, right? There's all those questions that already have been addressed and, you know, a lot of information and data is out there about them. But I feel like what a filmmaker should ask is like, what's next? And then figure out how the answer or, you know, multiple answers to that question inform their festival strategy, how it informs their distribution strategy, how it informs their, you know, if they're going to do a crowdfund for the next film and, and basically like how it informs the next six months when that film is out there. Like, do they have another script? Or do they hate movies and they want to take this money and they want to invest it in an app? Do they, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what happens next? So I feel like that's sort of the thing. Like we are so used to kind of like living in the moment that we don't think about like sort of like the future. And if we would just take a few minutes to say like, what's next? You know, I think that you'd see more filmmakers positioning themselves to discover those black swans and positioning themselves to take advantage of opportunities because they thought about it and thought about what they want out of it and thought about what they can bring to, you know, an environment or a situation. So, so those are kind of like, you know, they're not very practical, like sort of like nuts and bolts kind of questions. Like, but I feel like those are really the questions that somebody's got to sit down and think about before they start executing or implementing stuff. Yeah. And I think the execution and implementation would be a lot smoother, a lot more successful. The ROI would be better. And I think the filmmaker would be a lot happier with the, uh, the outcome. Very nice. Very nice. Hey, I want to thank you so much for taking your time to, uh, to do the interview. Hey, my pleasure, Scott. Like, I, I feel like this is great. I like, you know, I don't often love like talking at like, you know, it's not like I relish like <laughs> podcast interviews, but I, I do actually love talking about this stuff with people who care about it. So this is, you know, this is a lot of fun for me. Well, definitely. You know, we're, we're not that far away. You're in Seattle. I'm in, I'm down in Portland. So um, hopefully we get together again in person. Uh, oh, yeah. Another event. Yeah. Well, I'll let you know next time. I don't come down to Portland all that often, but I'll let you know uh, if and when, you know, I'm sure in the next six months. Uh, and same up here in Seattle. And maybe there's a way we can figure out how to get you like a press pass or some sort of thing for a SIF oh, cool. uh, this coming year. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much. And um, that's it. All right, cool. That concludes my interview with Brad Wilkie over at smarthousecreative.com. By the time this episode is published, it would be number 97, which means we're three more episodes away from the 100th episode. So, yay. <laughs> so if you like the podcast, please think about leaving a ratings review over on iTunes. Just go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes to leave a ratings review there. It definitely helps get the uh, podcast more exposure, get the message out there uh, of what we're doing and, you know, sort of the information that we're curating over here. But don't go away empty-handed. Of course, there's a free gift for you. If you stayed around this long in the podcast, just head on over to filmtrooper.com. That's it, filmtrooper.com, 
And right there on the main landing page, when you go to filmtrooper.com, is an option to get the free three-part video series on the new adventures in film distribution. This is a presentation I've been working on and have been workshopping at a few film festivals that I've been presenting at. And the outcome or the feedback or the response that I've been getting from it has been very, very good. And I'm excited to share it with you if you have not already seen it. So again, just head on over to filmtrooper.com and say, yes, I want this free three-part video series. That's it for now. I will catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks.